had a very first day of Christmas. We continue celebrating Christmas and Advent here for another few days. And during the Advent season, we've been looking at a series called The Songs of Hope, where we've been connecting different aspects of the human condition with the prayers of the songs, the prayer book of Christianity. This morning, we are coming to Psalm 13, Praying Our Tears. This is our fifth lesson. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes, for I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome them, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. This is the word. Father, I pray that during this time you would speak your love over us. Would you give us the imagination to hope for your redemption in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of hurt and pain and suffering? Let the richness of your mercy wash over us, remind us that you have promised not to leave us alone. Draw us out of the affliction of self-interest, self-concern. Let us see the person next to us. Let us see the person on the street. Let us see the person around the world that you have made in your image who also lives in a world of pain and suffering and sorrow. Would you give us hope. Would you give us light. Would you help us to believe the story of the gospel again? We pray in Jesus' name. Uh, our lives, if you think about it, are comprised of waiting. We wait until we get to the next grade. We wait until we have our next birthday. We wait until we're grown ups. We wait until the end of our education so we can begin working on our career. We wait for our significant other. We wait for children and we wait for them to leave. And it goes on and on until we wait for. We have a dog. Many of you guys have met her. She's a sweet thing. But she doesn't wait for anything. She just lives in the moment. I'm hungry. I want to play. I want to sleep. I want someone to pet me. She doesn't think about years in the future, the next stage of her development. And therefore, she's free from anxiety. But also, she's free from hope. It's a humanity's privilege and it's our burden to care about the future. But don't we also not only hope for things to change in our lives, or that we wait for things to happen to us, but we also wait for things to happen to the world? Aren't we waiting for the dark things in our world to be remedied? Aren't we wondering why some people suffer so unjustly while dishonest people seem to always land on their feet? Aren't we trying to make sense of five and six-year-olds being gunned down in their classroom. 
these questions aren't asked only in church, of course, but they have a special relevance here because in this community we confess to know and worship a God who cares about this world, a God who is powerful and loving. Psalm 13 gives us an example of one who had seen the grandeur and the goodness of God, who confesses to worship that same God who upholds all things and is loving and good. And maybe because of that, because the psalmist knew that God, he was perplexed and confused by the way things are. This psalm is full of tears. And it tells us about the expectation of tears for all of humanity, the expression of tears, and finally the end of tears. You'll notice if you're around here for very long that we happen to send a, sit to sing a good number of what's called minor key songs, these songs of lament. And it's not because Matt and I are particularly melancholy, although that might be true. It's because if we're only singing happy songs, if we're doing something very different than the Bible does, we're doing something very different from human experience, now, why, you may ask, do we take this up at Christmas? Why do I want to ruin your festive mood, your joyful mood, by talking about a song that is this, that is this dark and foreboding? But Christmas, you see, is an answer to a problem. It's the answer to probably the biggest problem of human experience. It's the answer to the problem of pain, suffering, and to evil. God is saying to us, in a tiny baby, and he cares about our tears. David's experience, David is the writer of this psalm, and in his experience, we, are, we see that we should expect tears. He says a couple of things. One, that he is alienated from God. Will you forgive me forever, God? Why do you hide your face from me? He's alienated and has a sense of abandonment. And if you've been through a dark, a dark time, if you've lost a loved one, you can, you can see the times that God has left you to fend for yourself. But David also feels an alienation from himself. He has this internal conflict. He says, I'm wrestling with my thoughts. He is experiencing day after day of sorrow. It's as if this blanket of sorrow has descended upon him. He can't find a way out. If you've experienced the, an end to a marriage, if you've experienced a loss of a loved one, you may have experienced this cloud of despair that seems to descend upon you. You can't find your way through it. And you wonder, where is God in my loneliness, in my pain, in my despair? Or maybe you've experienced just depression. In that there's not an external obvious cause of why you feel so badly, but you can't push through it. This cloud of despair hangs on you in the light of the fog. David was a king of Israel. He was close to God's heart. He was righteous, and yet we see tremendous pain and sorrow in his story. And as we see this, we have to realize that uprightness, your own personal morality, your own proximity to God won't insulate you from pain. 
we can't begin to think when suffering breaks into our lives that God must be angry at us and punishing us for some sort of sin. And conversely, we can't say that when things are going well, that obviously God is rewarding me for my effort. The Psalms are full of lament. And many of them are the Psalms of lament of King David, the man after God's own heart. We see that following God doesn't exempt you, doesn't exempt me from tears. In fact, we're to expect them. We're to expect them as humans, because it's part of the human experience. We're to expect them as Christians. How long, O oh Lord, how long will this continue? It's not only a human question, but it's a very Christian question. The Bible expands upon it. How long, David says, in not only his personal struggle, but the question implies how long until you end it all? David knows, as you know, even if you're not a believer this morning, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. When will the final redemption come? When, David says, will your promises make my pain make sense? When will your promises, when will your redemption give meaning to my suffering? In this world, we should expect tears. But God honors those tears. And he invites those tears. He invites prayers that are shot through the tears. He invites us to express our tears to him. Paul Thomas Anderson is one of the better filmmakers working in the industry today. He's been at the home of movies such as There Will Be Blood, Magnolia, and his latest The Master, which I haven't seen yet which has certainly received some Oscar attention. Now, as a filmmaker, I'm not sure I can say that I like his films, but they're undoubtedly powerful. One of the most interesting things about P.T. Anderson films is that they ask big, courageous questions about what is wrong with our world. He gives, as the song does in written form, Paul Thomas Anderson gives us stunning visual and he refuses to tie everything at the end in a nice bow. You experience gut-wrenching honesty, heart-wrenching anguish, and then it's over, and the credits roll, and it's frustrating, but it's so true to human experience. He knows something is wrong with our world. He knows something is wrong with the status quo, and he wants you and I see it and wrestle with it. I would argue that he's tapping into the type of courageous poetry that is evident by this psalm. And not only does the psalmist express his tears, but he expresses them to God. That's stunning. That's courageous. Listen again to what he prays. Is this really in the Bible? How long, O oh Lord? He's praying his impatience. You're not supposed to do that. Will you forget me forever? He's accusing God. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? He's full of self-pity. Look on me and answer God. 
challenging God to make good all his promises. You talk to God like that. If you're skeptical about Christianity because of the problem of evil and suffering, have you taken the time to actually sit before God and be honest, to put your thoughts to poetry? Have you casually dismissed him because of this perceived problem? Or have you taken your tears before him? And if you're a Christian, have you been courageous enough to actually express your tears to God? Has the hurt of this world, has the suffering of your neighbors made you weep in his presence and challenged him to answer? What does this tell us about God? What does this prayer tell us that he is inviting, that he's wanting from us? It tells us that he's not threatened by honesty. That he's not threatened to deal with you as you are, in a state of despair, in a state of confusion, in a state of anguish, in a state even of anger with him. That he wants you to be, he wants to be with you in your desperation, in your disquiet, and even in your doubt. I think I can say without offending anyone that men generally have a more difficult time displaying emotion and communicating with feelings. And when we get close to women, and who, let's face it, are our emotional superiors, and we're so self-conscious about this that we've even come up with ways of saying that emotional tone is actually being strong. Have you heard the idioms that we're calm and collected? That strong people are calm and collected. That confident people don't get bent out of shape. That tough people take pain like a man. When we live by these idioms, when we will believe them, when men get close to women, it of course creates stress in our relationships, especially in marriage. In my marriage, I try to contain my emotions, to deal with feelings alone, because feelings kind of make me uncomfortable. I instinctually shy away from being open about that, to expressing emotion while I'm still in the process. Instead, I will intentionally push against this instinct. I will open up to Katie only on my own terms. I'll open up only after I feel better, only after I understand my feelings, only after I've conquered my feelings and I've begun to be calm and collected again. That's when I want to talk. After I've got it figured out, after I'm no longer desperate for help, after I'm no longer needy, when my feelings are gone. Don't we do that with God too? Out of 150 songs, some scholars have categorized as many as 70 as songs of lament. These are powerful, emotive, strong, affective prayers. If you're a Christian, how much of your prayer life bears the mark of this kind of holy irreverence? How often are you strong enough to come in the presence of God in weakness? How often are you strong enough to come to God with your tears, with your vulnerability, with your confusion? How often do you tell God what you really think rather than what you think you're supposed to say? John Updike, the great 
writer and novelist says in one of his novels that we Westerners have lost whole octaves of passion. While third world women can still make an inhuman, piercing, grieving noise right from the floor of the soul. That's the music of the songs. The music of life is pretty thin without poetry like this, without recognizing how beaten down we often are, without recognizing how broken our world is, and yet finding a scene of hope. You see, at the end of the day, suffering and pain and heartache are signs that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. They are necessary reminders that we live in a broken, sinful world. And we need it, especially in the affluent West, when we try our best to live without pain and suffering of any kind and see it as a curse. We need to see through pain that the world can't ultimately satisfy our deepest longings. That broken hearts can't be mended by broken things. And the Psalms give us language to pray in the midst of that brokenness, in the midst of the world as it really is, and yet with great hope that it will ultimately change. And that's why Psalm 13 is a Christmas song. It's a Christmas prayer. With all of its heartache, with all of its hardness, it's a Christmas prayer. We need to understand the sadness and the hurt that Jesus came to remedy. If you remember way back in our study of the Gospel of Luke that we've been going through before this series on the Psalms, you'll remember Zachariah, who was spoken to by an angel. He was promised that you and your wife would be with a child, with a child. And he became the father of John the Baptist. And he's told that his son will be a great man in the faith. He will be a forerunner of the Messiah. In fact, it will prepare the way for Christmas, if you will. Zechariah says of this baby, Praise be to the Lord, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Through him, the tender mercy of God will shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. On Christmas, we love opening gifts. We love surprises. And that's exactly what Zechariah receives. He receives a surprise, a gift that God has turned to humanity with his inmost being and says, let me rescue you. Let me give you all of who I am. That he comes to meet humanity with a welcome in the Christ child. We need pain in order to see what Christmas is all about. Christmas is the coming of salvation and the beginning of the end for all suffering everywhere. What does David pray? David says, God, light up my eyes. Help me to see. Help me to see through this fog of despair and cling to your promises. Tell me the story again, God. Remind me of what you're doing in this world because it looks like all is coming to naught. Tell me the Christmas story of how you're going to put an end to my tears. An end of tears. 
a number of years ago, and I think I've shared this here before. NPR did a story on famous voices, and they had different commentators talk about what type of images, what type of emotions the different famous voices conjured in their mind as they listened to them. And one of them was Roy Orbison, who was famous primarily and had his biggest claim in the middle of the 60s when men were singing about defiant masculinity. And he sung with sort of this quiet vulnerability. And one of these commentators said that Roy Orbison's voice was like pain and hope doesn't life feel like that sometimes? Whether you're a Christian or not, we all ask sometimes, which will end, which will win it when out? Will pain and suffering win the day? Or is there a reason to have a hope that someday this will change? Our world is like pain and hope in a dead loop. When we feel like pain is winning, we want to grab God by the lapels and say, Why? How long, O oh Lord, will you let this stand in your world? Why are you letting this happen? Why don't you come down here and take a look at what's going on? In Christianity, the only religion that dares to say that's precisely what God did. That God doesn't send an instruction manual on how to keep your head up in a sad world. He instead sends his son to inhabit our sad world and allow it to do its worst thing. In Christmas, we celebrate Jesus being born a baby, an infant. But there's a story, a life that's yet to be lived. And at the end, it ends in what apparently is tragedy. It is certainly in what is great pain and suffering. And as Jesus goes to his crucifixion, as he goes to the cross, he prays in the garden of Gethsemane, and he says, my soul is surrounded with sorrow. When we pray our tears, we are praying to the one, who, the only one who truly understands. Being a Christian doesn't exempt anyone from tears. It didn't exempt Jesus from tears, but it connects you with the God who is crushed by grief and sorrow. On the cross, Jesus prays, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, a messianic psalm, but also a psalm with with much lament. A friend of mine said it occurred to him finally the other day after reading that psalm over and over through the years that what Jesus is doing he is praying his feelings. That he is praying his fears. He's praying his tears. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus can pray his feelings. That Jesus can pray his fears. And friends, you and I can as well. They're not a sign of weakness, but a sign of being connected with the one who is cosmically strong and yet was wounded. This friend of mine has an artist in his congregation who has a picture in her house of a tree. (coughs) And the tree is a funny looking tree because it's this very grand oak that has a hole right through the middle of it. And it's strange because 
you don't see trees like that. It's an odd looking tree. My friend asked her about it, and she said that she painted it because I'm fascinated by something that can continue living with a hole in the middle of it. That's someone who's learned to pray their tears. That's someone who's learned to crawl up close to Jesus in the midst of pain, in the midst of desperation, not after they've got it all figured out and gotten better, but in the midst of confusion. Another one, another person who's learned to crawl up close to Jesus in the midst of pain is Nicholas Wolterstor, who I've quoted here before. Stephen, Matt, and I got a chance to meet him. It was a great um, opportunity because one of the greatest books I think on suffering is his Lament for a Son. And it's hard, even if you're not a believer, to get through it. But he does. He gets through to the other side of his suffering with his son, Herod, is killed in a mountaineering accident. And he says this the Stoics of antiquity said, Be calm, disengage yourself. Neither laugh nor weep. But Jesus says, Be open to the wounds of the world. Mourn humanity's mourning. Weep over humanity's weeping. Be wounded by humanity's wounds. Be in agony over humanity's agony. But do so in the good cheer that the day of peace is coming. No other religion, friends, deals pain and suffering and sorrow in this way. Christianity, the gospel of Jesus, doesn't make light of your pain, but gives you a reason to hope that it will be. It gives you a reason that it doesn't have to consume you, it doesn't have to define you, that you can live a hole in the middle of your story and continue pressing on because Jesus has a hole in the middle of his story that is made by you made by our sin, and yet he continues to welcome us in. He continues to say, come and worship at Christmas. My life was lived for you, so that you can be free, so that you can have an end to your tears. David sees an end to his tears at the very end. He says, after this long lament, this heartache, and this sorrow, this question of where God is in the midst of it, Maybe there was a time in between when he wrote the first part and when he wrote the second. But I think not. He says, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. This is one of those areas where you see that you understand why the translator said it this way, because there's no other way to say it. In English, he says, for he has been good to me. In Hebrew, it's what they call perfective of confidence. It's a prophetic per per. It's as if a prophet transports themselves to the future where they see God's promises being fulfilled and in solid state as if they are fulfilled where they are now. It's prophetic perfect. It's saying that I know so confidently that God's promises will ring true finally and fully that I can be confident of that now, that I can even put it in the past tense. For he has been good to me. Our English might better say, he will 
be good to me. He will deal bountifully with me, and therefore I will sing the Lord's praises. His redemption will exceed my expectation, and I don't have the imagination to grab hold of it, but I do so trusting. It doesn't mean that David is perfectly content. It doesn't mean that he's put aside his confusion entirely, that he's put aside his anger, that he's put aside his pain, that he's gotten through the pain, and that it's all in the past. It doesn't mean that at all. It's just that his sight has changed. What he's looking at has changed. He's now glancing at the sorrow and gazing at the extreme beauty of God plan of redemption, the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. His sight is changed. He sees that the gospel is better than the pain is bad. Our lives are full of waiting. Phases of waiting. Times of waiting for the next thing. But what God tells us in this passage is just wait. Not just for the next stage or the next accomplishment Wait and hope. Your tears have meaning. Your tears have dignity. God invites them. God honors them. God wants you to express them. They want to hope for their end. Friends, that's what Christmas is all about. It's about the coming of the one who can find us to the end of all of our tears. Let's continue worshiping. So this is a hard, hard passage, and I know there are many of us in these pews that are suffering greatly. And I pray that these words would be soothing for them. They would not in any way diminish the real pain that they feel, that all of us feel from time to time. That they would give meaning and dignity to them, and also that they would bear hope. Would you give us hope? Not that we can just rise above it, but that you have risen above, that you have risen to heaven, where you command all things, and that you have given us salvation, you have given us reason to hope, you have given us the promises of the gospel. As we come to the table, let us take hold of it.